This is an ABC podcast. So, we've been hearing in the news about the ramping up of the novel coronavirus here in Australia. And while toilet paper may be disappearing from your bathrooms at work, there are better ways to prepare for a worsening of the situation. I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, we separate fact from fiction when it comes to prepping for the coronavirus at work. We'll hear how the virus is impacting the gig economy, the rights and responsibilities of bosses and their staff, and what organisations should be doing right now to plan for a potential pandemic here in Australia. Health reporter from ABC Science, Tegan Taylor, hosts a podcast called Coronacast with the health report's Norman Swan. Each day they answer every question under the sun about the coronavirus, and today she's answering ours. Tegan, how is coronavirus transmitted? So we know for sure that it's transmitted via respiratory droplets, which is just a fancy way of saying the bits of moisture that come out of your mouth when you talk or out of your nose and mouth when you sneeze or cough. So that's for sure. And so you can either get that if someone coughs in your face, which hopefully they don't, but you can also get it if those respiratory droplets have landed on a surface and you touch it and then you touch your nose or your mouth or your eyes. And that's why you're hearing a lot of advice to wash your hands and don't touch your face. What can workplaces do to prevent transmission then? The World Health Organization's advice to workplaces is pretty straightforward and readable. The kind of tips it has are making sure workplaces are clean and hygienic. So wipe down your workstation, keep sort of common areas regularly cleaned. Um, Promoting regular thorough hand washing by not just employees, but also other people who are coming through the workplace. So contractors and customers and that sort of thing. And then sort of it goes hand in hand, so to speak, promoting good respiratory hygiene. So coughing into your elbow, cover your cough or sneeze with a, a tissue and then throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. And then also advising people to look at the travel advisories before they go on business trips, because that stuff is changing really rapidly. And it could change while you're away. So your workplace probably has some policies in place for that. Hopefully they do. And then the other one, which is really important, is staying home if you're sick. And the WHO has really gone like above and beyond here. Their recommendation is that if you've had to take paracetamol or ibuprofen or or aspirin for any reason, if you're in an area where COVID-19 is already spreading, then stay home from work. Because even if you're not sick yet, if you've had those medications, it can actually mask symptoms like fever. So that's specifically for places where it's kind of spreading in the community, but that's just something to keep in mind. Some say the quarantine period should be 21 days and that 14 is not enough. It's really interesting. The official advice is that the incubation period, so basically the time from when you get infected to when you start having symptoms, you could be contagious during that time, for starters, and then that range is sort of somewhere between 1 and 14 days. There is some studies, like case studies, that show it could be a lot higher than that, like it could be 24 days. But, yeah, there there could be a change in... Um, quarantine periods at some stage. When is it considered a pandemic? Because this may trigger some particular risk action plans for workplaces. Right. So the word pandemic has a couple of different definitions, but for our purposes, the World Health Organisation has not yet declared it a pandemic, but the Australian government has already activated its emergency management plan. So it's basically operating under the assumption that it either is a pandemic already or it's going to be. I think in terms of workplaces starting their pandemic 
plans, if they have them, will probably be around when we have transmission in the community. So basically when people are catching the virus in the community and we don't necessarily know exactly where they picked it up and it's hard to get in touch with every single person that they've been in contact with during that time. And we're not there yet. But yeah, once we start seeing that, they call it sustained transmission, that's when I think workplaces will probably start putting those sorts of plans into action. Tegan Taylor from ABC Science. Now, often in crises like natural disasters, it's the people who can least afford it who are the most affected. ABC Science technology reporter Ariel Bogle has been investigating the impact of coronavirus on gig economy workers. Ariel, thanks for joining me. Who did you talk to? I spoke to a range of people who work for companies like Uber, Deliveroo, Ola, another rideshare company, to gauge what they were thinking about the coronavirus outbreak. Mm. And in general, they were scared, you know, scared for themselves, unsure of how best to protect their customers. And then if there is a more general shutdown of work or public events, they're worried about their income. And why are they so scared? Well, if you drive for Uber, say, you roam the city, you meet all kinds of people, you drive people home from the airport who might be coming from countries where the coronavirus outbreak is already more sustained. So you're really exposed to a lot of people and they're worried that if they take steps to protect themselves, say, put on a face mask or ask customers to sit in the back of the car and not up front next to them, that they'll be marked down. So of course, if you've ever been in an Uber, you'll know at the end of the ride, you're prompted to rate your driver out of five. They're worried that if they take those sort of health steps that customers might feel offended and give them a low rating, which can cause them to get kicked off the app and lose that income. So there's really a lot of uh, factors here that are troubling them. What has been the response then of Uber and meal delivery service providers like Deliveroo? Well, when I spoke to drivers and bike riders for these companies earlier this week, they mostly told me they were concerned because they hadn't heard that much from these companies, hadn't heard many instructions about what to do. This week, Deliveroo, I saw an email that they sent their riders, uh, instructing them to take precautions, washing their hands, washing the kit they use when they deliver food, and also asking them, of course, if they get diagnosed to notify the company so they can trace back where they've been. Uh, Uber also said this week it's going to be in contact with drivers. But in fact, the Transport Workers Union also this week sent a letter to Uber asking them to step up and provide sick cover for the drivers and also basics like hand sanitizer. So do you think that there might be a risk then that gig economy workers may just keep on working in situations when they shouldn't? Well, that's certainly a possibility. I mean, this really shows some of the issues with this business model. So gig economy companies, Uber, Deliveroo and others, they don't employ these people that drive the cars and ride the bikes. They're there as contractors. They give them weird names like driver partner, which seems a bit of a misnomer, but they don't employ them. And that's the important thing, which means they owe no obligations around sick leave, work cover and things like that. And so if that is your key income, 
and you get sick, you may keep working. You really might not have a choice. And the other reason why this is particularly problematic in this case is because a lot of these drivers and riders are not necessarily Australian citizens. A lot of riders for Deliveroo, for example, may be international students, and that means they don't even have access to Australian healthcare. They don't have access to Medicare. That is another factor. The price comes into that. Will they get tested if they fall sick? Thanks, Ariel. Technology reporter for ABC Science, Ariel Bogle, and there's a link to her story on our program page. And just a note, we're recording this on Friday, March the 6th. And with me now is Employment Law Specialist Michael Harmer and Chief of Staff at software company Estimate One, James Law. G'day both. Hi, thanks for having us. Good morning. Michael, you were listening in there. What are the legal responsibilities then of companies like Deliveroo and Uber to these gig economy workers? Look, every one of those businesses has responsibilities under work health and safety legislation, not only to those gig economy workers, but to every one of their customers, clients, or anyone that is impacted by their operations. And so they have very high levels of responsibility. And if they fail to fulfill them and keep everyone safe that comes into contact with their undertaking in any way, shape or form, they could face prosecution or civil lawsuit. Can you give me an example of one of these high levels of responsibility? Well, for example, they have to ensure that anyone coming into contact with their undertaking uh, is safe. And so basically they would have to put in place protocols to make sure that their drivers do report if they have symptoms that could be coronavirus related. If they don't have the protocols in place, there could be a whole series of persons serviced by that particular driver, for example, if you take Uber, and Uber itself could pick up liability mm. for spreading the virus, not only to its customers, but through links into the whole community. And where that ends with class actions these days is anyone's business. So it's a big responsibility that they need to take seriously. And then what about the rights of the contract workers? They seem to be in a really precarious position. Extremely precarious. And look, it's one of the issues that our economy and our legislation hasn't really caught up with properly protecting these people because it's great to have flexibility on both sides. But this is a major shock for the Australian economy and for most businesses. And it's very easy for businesses to put the risk of absorbing that shock onto their workers and particularly if they're casuals or here contractors who really don't have the backup and the wherewithal to uh, survive a long period of business interruption. James Law, you're informing your staff of your continuity plans today. Now here at the ABC, we've actually been instructed to make backup programs and be ready to work from home if needed. Tell me about your plans, which I believe is in stages. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we're focused at the moment on giving people access to the information from far more smarter heads than ours <laughs> around how to protect themselves against the virus. Right. And then we're deferring all travel where, where possible, um, which is, 90, I think, 100% of cases. Right. Oh, hang um, on. All travel. So we're talking interstate, overseas. All air travel. Okay. All yep. air travel. And that's already in place? It will be as of today, yes. Right. And then what other protocols are you taking for this stage one? 
that's about it. And then it's mm. about, you know, making sure people are washing their hands, that they are limiting interactions with suppliers or customers or candidates for, for jobs, such as handshaking and, uh, ah, and the like. Right. What's stage two then? Yeah, stage two is a big stage and, and, and might involve multiple stages, but it includes things like insisting that no one outside of the Estimate 1 team members come into the workplace. So that would include you know, no online shopping, <laughs> no uh, suppliers, no deliveries. Uh, all interviews would be conducted over the phone or via video conferencing uh, and really reducing the, impact, the interaction that staff have when they're at work. So that's basically everyone working from home, is that what you're saying? Not initially. It okay. would be no one coming into the office. Right. But then it would quickly move if there was a hotspot. An example we've used is we've got a couple of people who work uh, from uh, Geelong and other regional areas. If Geelong became a hotspot, then we would suggest that anyone living in Geelong or commuting through Geelong would be asked to work from home oh, uh, for, I see. for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And then beyond that, where it starts to become all-encompassing and it's, you know, inner-city Melbourne or something similar, then we would ask everyone to work from home and we would support that through the use of laptops that, that they've got available to them um, and making sure that people had the right sort of Wi-Fi and internet connectivity. Mm. Yeah. Um, and we are lucky in that all, all of our services and all the tools that we use are cloud-based. So mm. anyone can work from home, including our, our customer success and support staff who can make phone calls over the internet. James, what would actually trigger then moving into stage two? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and we're, we're deferring that decision to the Department of Health and Human Services and the World Health Organisation. Michael, and do you have similar plans at your law firm? We certainly do, and we've formed a project team that uh, actually met yesterday and meets again next week. And similarly, we have a risk management plan and a change management plan to um, implement it. Very important communication around all those steps with our staff and basically an attempt to protect not only our staff, but again, everyone coming into contact with our business and again, staging up based upon the government escalation. And similar to James, we're working off um, Department of Health information to gauge um, escalation in our prevention plans. And how difficult will it be for your workers to work remotely then, Michael? Look, extremely difficult. We actually had a meeting with our IT contractor this week on just that uh, because we have a large number of our staff, particularly our professional employees who do work from home regularly, but our support staff, uh, personal assistants, reception, some management have not been regularly working from home. So we've had to increase our investment, make sure that everyone is able to work at home. We're going to do some tests on that and essentially try and keep the business running remotely should we reach that point where the government is recommending against people travelling on public transport or having face-to-face -face interaction. So, look, it would be extremely difficult for our business and I think for many businesses the reality is a lot of clients will be impacted and won't be fully operational themselves and that's where this coronavirus has a real double whammy. There's the impact of the virus itself and your safety risk management there but the second whammy is the impact on the economy, which could be the largest shock we've seen for many of us in business, and trying to manage that. And there's a whole ream of employment rights and obligations that attach to each of those two impacts. 
Yeah, uh, we're, similarly, we our software is for the construction industry. So if the coronavirus takes hold, then you'd imagine many construction sites will be shut down and, and the construction industry itself would reduce significantly. So we're aware of the, the, the economic impacts as well. James, will this coronavirus prep then actually force us potentially to change the way we work into the future? Yeah, I think it could and I think it's something that will allow us to be more flexible by testing the way that we can work and how how we can use the tools that are available to service customers anywhere rather than just in the office and be a bit more transparent with what we're working on. A, a transparency over trust is something that supports this stuff happening really effectively without having to worry yourself about whether someone's working or not. You can just, you can see it and you can engage with them and support them. And uh, the other thing that I think it'll have an impact on is, and where what we're concerned about is social isolation. So if people are working from home for long periods of time by themselves, how do we ensure that they're okay and their welfare is being looked after, even if they're not sick. Um, yeah. So, you know, how do you engage with them? What tools do you use? Phone, video conferencing, Slack, email, to ensure that, you know, their anxiety levels are okay and, and that their mental health's okay. You know, they might be living alone. Um, and then also how we support people who are supporting others. So people supporting children or elderly family members who are in an at-risk category. So we're looking at ways that we will be able to allow people more sick leave, to take more sick leave and personal leave to care for others as well as themselves. And then ensuring that we've got a, a bit more of an eye on people who are in that situation. So kids living with elderly parents or family members, we're really trying to make sure that we understand that and we support that. Michael, uh, what if staff don't have enough sick leave? Can an employer force them to take unpaid leave or holiday leave? Look, there, there are various stages one would go through and look with every employee and business. It'll depend upon whether they have a particular contract in place or award or enterprise agreement. Uh, but talking in general terms, there is a right of an employer to give directions to staff if it's necessary for safety to uh, work from home or to take time out. If that's a direction from the employer as part of their business operations, that would normally be required to be on a paid basis. Uh, if it's based around the health of the staff member and they do have an illness, then yes, it would be taken as sick leave. Uh, in terms of the ability to direct that it be taken as unpaid leave, that's more controversial because that amounts to a stand down. Mm. And one wouldn't reach that point normally unless there was some superimposed event such as the virus, which say prevented people from coming to work. They couldn't viably work from home. They can't be utilised. There is then the right under the Fair Work Act, arguably, to stand people down without pay. Michael, and specifically, can a company force employees then who have travelled internationally or interstate for holidays to not come to work for a specific quarantine period? Absolutely. And indeed, a company that didn't have regard to the WHO and the Australian government indications on countries and travel alerts and, uh, I guess, precautions to be taken could itself fall well short of its work health and safety obligations to everyone attached to that business if it does not have regard to those sort of quarantine periods. So can employers then require employees to undertake medical tests? Like, could I scan people at the entry of workplaces to check their temperatures? 
Yes, look, the, the requirement is to take all reasonably practical steps to ensure safety. And so there's a lot of things that we do day to day at the moment, which um, if you stepped up significantly from them would be seen to be unreasonable. But here where we're facing this crisis, uh, it would be quite reasonable to have someone uh, who presents symptoms, to, uh, direct them to go and work at home, ask them to get a medical assessment, to get a sign off that they don't have the virus and to provide that certification to the employer before they come back into the office. Now, it needs to be done with great sensitivity and care in regard to the privacy of that individual. But as James had properly pointed out, there's huge issues here around mental health with the mm. stress of all of this and communication's vital. And so if Mary's um, asked to work from home and gets a check and she's okay and it turns out she's got some other condition, you wouldn't jump up and announce to everyone it's okay, she's got XYZ disease. Uh, but you mm. might certainly counsel them that she does not have coronavirus and she's safe to be reintroduced to the workplace. Because, uh, I mean, if I look at today, we've got a whole high school in Sydney stood down every staff member and student because one student was found infected. Uh, that's mm. a big high. Yesterday, uh, we had a, a major business, uh, a law firm uh, and Vodafone as a business, each stand down staff um, because of fears around managing this. So it's already happening. It's a real yeah. risk. It's a potential shock to businesses. And anything that you can do to give yourself a lead indication to all right try by fairly imposing on one staff member as sensitively as you can in regard to their mental health and everyone's mental health but reassuring at the same time your staff look we're doing what we can we're looking out for you here's the measures this is why we're doing it carry them with them get them some ownership around it every one of those employees has their own health and safety obligation to everyone at that workplace and every customer they deal with so raising awareness around why this is happening and why it's reasonable uh, things that we wouldn't normally consider reasonable are reasonable in this circumstance. And uh, an employer has rights to give reasonable directions to impose requirements at the workplace to ensure safety, and that should be pursued by every business. Can an employee then legally say no to work where they fear it could expose them to risk? Yes, they can. Um, again, that would have to be reasonably founded, not just someone off on a frolic. So essentially every employee has an obligation to every other person at the workplace. So they've got their own work health and safety obligations to fulfil. Mm. Uh, now, one of those obligations, strangely enough, um, is to look after themselves. And uh, you can technically breach the law by not looking after yourself. Um, so an employee, if they felt they were attached to an employer, be it gig economy or otherwise, that wasn't taking proper precautions for other staff, for their customers, for the way that they conduct their business and was just hitting on the bottom line and trying to skim through this, uh, an employee would be quite entitled to say, look, you're not taking reasonable precautions. I've read the literature coming from the federal government, the Department of Health. You're out of line. It's not safe for me or my family for me to attend there and I'm not attending. And you're the problem. You've prevented that. And technically that employee would have a claim against the employer for full pay, uh, despite being precluded by the conduct of the employer to, uh, from working. And if it reached the point where that employee was so browned off that they didn't want to work for that business anymore, that would be what was called a constructive dismissal because effectively it's not the volition of the employee that has forced them out of that business, it's the conduct of the employer. And so they've been constructively dismissed and they would have many actions against that employer that hasn't got things in line 
hasn't properly risk managed this situation and hasn't helped their staff make the change with them. And James, managing a remote workforce when we haven't before, uh, you've got a lot of experience in this. So what needs to be in place? What are the key things we need to know? I mean, I think that there's like hygiene issues around uh, software and hardware, such as you know, laptops, internet, tools that enable people to collaborate, tools that enable people to do their job. Mm. And if that, if that includes interacting with customers, then that's got to be considered. And, and I think that um, uh, Michael mentioned, and, and something we're considering doing too, a, a trial of this plan by virtue of having half of every team work from home is a good example of a trial that will help you understand what falls through the cracks uh -huh. and what tools and systems don't work um, and then allows you to plan to fix those or adjust those before you have to enact everyone working from home if that's, if that's where this goes. Thank you so much, James and Michael. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. James Law, Chief of Staff at software company Estimate One, and Michael Harmer, Chairman and Senior Team Leader at Harmer's Workplace Lawyers. You've been listening to This Working Life. We can't give you toilet paper, but we can make work less sh If you enjoy our show, please subscribe, rate and review. It helps us get the word out. Thanks to producer Maria Tickle. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.